Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know, the show where I invite people virtually into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting with Amy Liz Harrison. She wrote this amazing book called Externally Expecting. And it's all about how a mom of eight got sober. And she actually talks about how her sobriety is like giving birth to a child. And so, Amy, welcome to the show. And before we get into talking about your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. It's just a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for reading my book and for having me on. And I'm just honored to be here. So nuts and bolts of it. I'm from California, uh, moved to the Seattle area in 2001 when I had my first child and felt a little bit of a rumbling of insecurity when I started Uh, meeting other moms and feeling that sense of, am I enough? Do I measure up? Am I doing this correctly? Who's breastfeeding? Who's bottle feeding? What's the general consensus on each of those? And, And started to really feel those feelings of insecurity and like perhaps I didn't really measure up. And so meanwhile, my husband who's wonderful and supportive was climbing the corporate ladder and really was kind of doing his own thing. And intermixed in between all of that was our life at church, which was wonderful, but also um, becoming difficult because I felt those same threads of, I can't really be honest here and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. And so slowly I got involved in mommy wine culture in the afternoons, started drinking with my neighbors in the cul-de-sac And then over time, what happened was I really began to sense that, oh, okay, I actually feel a little bit better and I feel like looser and more of a person when I drink. I feel like I'm not just mom cleaning up the spilled Cheerios all day, cleaning up, you know, dirty diapers and laundry. And so what I did was I began to have a glass of wine in the afternoons. And this is when I had four kids. So I had four little kids. I'm stay at home um, mom and out in the suburbs doing the suburb thing and really began to feel like I just needed a treat, just wanted a break. And so that's when it all began to start. And it wasn't super long before I thought, you know what? I'm not sure that I'm controlling this anymore. I think maybe this alcohol is controlling me. And that's when it started to get a little bit scary. I kind of thought that maybe I was just going through a hard time. You know, I had these four little kids and I had some postpartum depression that I really didn't talk to my doctor about. And so what I did was thought, well, you know, I'll just quit this pretty soon. You know, this is just, I'll let myself have this treat in the afternoons for now. And then later on, I'll just pull it back in. And I sort of reasoned that that's what was going to work for me because I had started out as what is known as basically a normal drinker. Somebody who, you know, can have a glass of wine, take it or leave it, doesn't matter and really just go about their business. And so I thought, gosh, you know, I'll just, I'll be able to get back there, no problem at all. And so that unfortunately wasn't true. And uh, when I say unfortunately, it's actually not unfortunate because this is the best thing that ever happened to me, finding sobriety. But really, I just had that vacancy of soul developing where I really, I did not know, I did not know how much self-hatred was really developing inside of me 
And I didn't feel, I did not feel like I was somebody who uh, was worthy of the life that I was given. If you looked at my life on paper, it all looked fabulous, but I had these resentments that were really starting to grow and really get some roots very deep in my heart. And those resentments were against my husband. I was resentful at my parents. I mean, you name it. And they were all, all of those people were nothing but loving and caring toward me. And, you know, we're not perfect. None of us are perfect, but I would take these instances that came up and it would be like, I blew them way out of proportion. And so I felt like the victim of life is how I would probably describe it best is I just felt like life was just this relentless ocean that was just the waves were knocking me over, knocking me over, knocking me over. And I really longed for a set of tools in a toolbox where I felt like, okay, I, I kind of get that life isn't easy, but is there something that's gonna help me be able to stand up when these waves come and, and make it through without being knocked over? And I guess I kept sort of putting my faith in other people to do that or in the church or in you name it. I mean, I tried all the, you know, I tried vitamins and, and supplements and all these different things to kind of make me feel better and none of it was working. And I really felt that I just didn't know where to go from here. So I didn't tell anybody that I had started to, to drink more and more and more over those feelings of inadequacy and resentment. And for a little while, it actually worked until I started waking up with consequences, feeling hungover and all of that, trying to overcompensate for the fact that I felt so terrible inside. So I became like a Disneyland mom type person mm -hmm. and really would sort of like, hey, okay guys, let's go this do this amazing fun thing that we kind of can't afford right now or whatever to just make myself feel better about what I was really doing to my family who I had dreamed of having since I was a little girl. And now to watch myself sort of ruin it uh, by the fact that I was drinking so much, I, I really just, I was scrambling, trying to figure out how I could not feel quite so horrific inside. Um, and if I'm talking too much, just butt in at any time. You're actually really good. Um, but your resentment, I remember one of the parts in the book, you were talking about how you were resenting your husband. He was trying to give you a break and take the kids away, like go to the grocery store or take them away. So you'd have your me time and you were resentment because he was getting praise for doing all that, for giving you that time. And it's yeah. like, you know, most dads will get praised, even though moms are the ones that spend the majority of the time with their kids. They don't get that praise. Yes. Yes. And you know, I'm not a hundred percent. I'm not over that a hundred percent. I mean, there are difficult things in life, you know, that, that sort of happen. I think, um, you know, moms, we, we all kind of know that we don't get the recognition that, um, we sort of deserve raising a whole new, uh, generation and, and it's difficult at times. It's really the most thankless job on the planet, I think, uh, but this was this was like a deep-rooted, swirling darkness that really came in over me, and I started to think, I just, I just hate him. I just, oh, I just hate him. I hate my husband. And there were times that he'd come home from work or come home from something like that from the grocery store, and everybody, oh, you're so wonderful, you know, telling him he's so great. And I just remember just this feeling of rage would come over me every now and again, where I just felt like, I just, you don't even, no one sees me, you know, nobody even sees that I'm a person. And I truly just really struggled with um, feeling totally overwhelmed and out of control with my anger. And, you know, it's not that bad anymore at all. <laughs> now, you know, something like that will happen or a thought will pop into my head. 
and I can pretty quickly just reframe it and just go, okay, there's your old self kind of popping up to say hello, some threads of, you know, feeling insecure or inadequate today and, and that's all right. And then just kind of move forward into gratitude and be able to turn the ship around pretty quickly. So for that, I'm grateful because, um, yeah, it, it was going down a, a poor path during those days. Now, in your starting your drinking, did you see, looking back now, can you see the slow progression of everything, how it happened? And was there some ways in time form you think I should have done this differently? I should have done this differently. You know, it's, it's a great question. And for me, I really do um, believe that it all unfolded the way it did because it had to. I really, I had to be the person who experienced the consequences that I did. And what I mean by that specifically is by getting a DUI with four of my kids in the car. I had to, I had to walk through that. I had to have legal problems because I had this wall up that just, I was rationalizing everything and convinced myself that I didn't really have a problem. I really could, if I got some willpower together, I really could stop. And so, I mean, for other people maybe uh, who experience, you know, drinking too much or possibly fearing that they're drinking too much, you know, it's a it's a tough road and I've been there in that there is this feeling inside um, for me. This is my experience as somebody who would who would easily use the term alcoholic to describe myself is that I just no, I was not going to say a word about it to anybody else. Now, the people who may not have a problem and who may just kind of be going through a tough season and are sort of using alcohol to kind of get through that and cope and are trying to pump the brakes a little bit. Uh, I can't really speak to that except that I, I did see one of my neighbors go through that. And what she did was she said to all of us, our neighbors, you know, hey, I kind of feel like I'm not super comfortable with the amount I'm drinking. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh my gosh, what a healthy way to look at yeah. things. I couldn't believe that she was so for, forthcoming with her private thoughts about her drinking. Wow. So we have to take a brief commercial break. Um, are you, can you read your book, part of your book when we come back? You know, I would love to. And that was the one thing I actually do not have. I'm in my daughter's place today so that I didn't have any uh, distractions. So I apologize. I don't have it on me. All right. Not a problem. We'll just oh, get sorry. back to talking once you get back. <laughs> so here we go. Here's okay. the commercial. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe. And don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am, what I want, 
and I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to see, know, and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others. No matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything, life choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to nakedselfworth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past, reclaim your sexy, and start re-choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are. And we are back chat, chatting with Amy Liz. Now, since you don't have your book, I want to read a part of your book that really like resonated with me. It was at toward the end of your book. Um, actually, it's probably the last chapter, I think, where your daughter is talking, your oldest daughter. And she's mm. the one that has seen you through everything. And she said, and you guys were sitting there talking about, your whole family was talking about your support your sobriety and they were celebrating you and you couldn't believe it and then she said these words and it just my mama heart went all out because i have a three girls and she said mm. she said mom i get my strength and my grit from you she explained how she wanted to get a tattoo of my sobriety date to serve as a reminder that she can do anything without escaping and go through any challenges and i love that and i love the fact that you also went with her to get that tattoo yeah and so, what yeah. did that mean to you because that really, that probably was like a. <gasps> yeah. You know what? Thank you so much. Thank you for um, reading that. And that moment and the experience of going with her was so, it was so surreal. You know, it was one of those, I can't believe this is actually happening. I can't believe there has been that much healing um, in all of the destruction that I caused and all of the challenges that we had gone through and it just i mean to have the closeness that i share with her and with all my kids it, it's it doesn't make sense right like it doesn't add up on paper and so you know i believe there is a spiritual element a supernatural element that has really uh, just guided my family through all of that process over the past 10 plus years. And, you know, it's an, it's been incredible and I wouldn't change it. I don't, of course, know what the journey would have been like had none of this happened. But I can tell you this, recovering out loud in front of my family and my kids, I did not want to do that, right? I just wanted to hit the pause button go get well, get totally well. And then, you know, come back to my family and everything would be fine. And, and that's just not how it was for me. They watched me struggle. In fact, I remember one time being at a restaurant and this is kind of early days. It was definitely in my first year of sobriety where I was still feeling a little bit, not like I had my feet totally on the ground yet, not confident in all social settings and circumstances. And restaurants were particularly hard for me in the first six months or so of my sobriety. And so we're sitting there, it's like lunchtime, it's me, my four kids, that's it, just the five of us. My husband wasn't there, it was like a summer break day. And this waiter walks by and he's got this big old frosted glass of Chardonnay and he puts it right down in front of me. Well, he had delivered it to the wrong table, but the four kids all just immediately looked at me like, what are you doing? And one of them said, did you order that? And I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't. And I just remember this, this fear and anxiety just came right over me. It just washed over me like a waterfall. 
And I just turned to him. I was like, this isn't mine. This isn't mine, you know? And he, he took it away and said, oh, sorry. And that was one of those moments of just like, I, I can't do this to you guys anymore. I can't let you experience those feelings of fear anymore. And, you know, those, those were massive things to me, but they were small to my kids because they were just like, no, we're just kind of making sure you were okay. And, and, and just the resilience of kids and the fact that all they wanted from me was to see me get healthy. Mm -hmm. Right. They, I mean, I did an amends process with them and I believe there are a lot of different ways to get sober, but for me, it was through a 12 step fellowship. And so when I got to those amends and I made those amends, they're like, mom, of course, basically they all said it in their own different ways. Of course we forgive you. We love you. We just want you to be better. You know, we just want you to be healthy. And that's, you know, that's an amazing thing, I think. So it's been incredible for me to watch them recuperate and convalesce in their own ways, which was like sort of nothing compared to what I thought they might go through. At the beginning, I thought, oh, I'm going to, you know, make sure I have everybody's got to have a great counselor and all this stuff. And no, no, my responsibility was to work on me. Do you think it's because they were so much younger, like maybe if they were teenager years that, that might have affected them a little bit differently? Yeah, it's a good question. I wonder. And I, I'm really glad that it happened in the timing that it happened, if that makes sense, because when they got to those teenage years and those exploratory years, the door was way open for conversations, just open and honest conversations about addiction and open and honest conversations about uh, being with friends and, and feeling peer pressure and all of that. Whereas um, if I had maybe gotten sober in the midst of that, it would have been a more challenging discussion. Um, and it just, it was kind of neat. In that way, we kind of grew together. Now, do do your older children ever have to explain to the younger ones? Because you, you, after you got sober, you had four more kids. Do they ever have to explain this was what mom was like when she was was drinking, or do they not? Even, does that conversation not even come up? Ah, uh, it doesn't come up too frequently. And it is, it's very interesting that my first four had seen that side of me, but my second four have never seen me drink. So there's that, which is so odd, but like my older two, my seven and, and she's now eight, she turned eight. Okay. So my eight-year-old and my seven-year-old son, my eight-year-old girl, seven-year-old son, they are the ones who are like, mom, you're in the no alcohol club, right? And I say, yeah, I am. And so they talk about it like a little bit, um, uh, I guess, obtruse, like it's kind mm -hmm. of just what mom does. She goes to meetings, right? Mom is involved in this stuff that involves uh, making herself a better mom through talking to other people and through therapy and and so I'm just really honest with them that, yeah, you guys, wow, you know, you didn't you didn't go through what the older four went through when they saw me drinking alcohol. And I've kind of left it at that for now, but I know when they can handle more and understand more about it, I'll definitely come forward with all the details and uh, share with them. That was my big deal too, was, was uh, with the book, just being able to have my kids hear things in my own voice. So it wasn't just some story that down the road generations from now, oh man, your great, great grandmother, <laughs> she did this horrible thing, you know? So um, yeah, so it was kind of a neat way to share my heart and preserve those memories as well. Um, so that they know that addiction runs in our family and, and you know, you can hit rock bottom and, and still it is possible, it is possible to quit. And I find that stuff inspiring and encouraging personally. So hopefully, you know, it'll be there to help somebody down the road. So have the older four children read your book? Mm -hmm. They actually have not read it. My son, uh, you know, they know everything that's in there. Mm -hmm. So I actually sat down with them and high level went through every chapter 
and said, here's what's in the chapter. Are you okay with this? Mm -hmm. And all of them were super supportive. I don't think I would have been that supportive, honestly. If, if I knew that one of my most difficult, emotionally draining times in life was going to be in someone's book, I don't think I'd be very comfortable with it. But they knew that this was part of my extension of process of healing at the 10 year mark. It was just, it felt like it was time. And so I really tried to, you know, not, I don't uh, generally name them in anything that involves them specifically. Um, and I tried to keep it pretty neutral and high level as much as it could be, but they all were very, I don't even care, mom, whatever, whatever you need to do is totally fine. And I guess that comes from feeling confident in your life that, you know, that person isn't who you are. It doesn't define you. And, and so I'm, you know, I think it's pretty amazing, but my one son uh, did start to read it and he goes, mom, I got into the introduction where you said, this is to my eight babies. And he goes, I just started crying and I couldn't read it. Wow. And so I thought that was just so sweet. And he's like, I just, I love you so much. And I'm so proud of everything that you've done to build a new life. And I was just so moved and I started crying and I thought, oh, it was just, uh, it, it was an incredible moment. So how hard was the, re the recovery um, and going into sobriety? Because you said in the very, in the book that your husband actually takes you to rehab and you, Mm -hmm. it kind of fails and you come back and that's when you get the DUI and then you have to go back mm -hmm. to rehab. What at that point was the DUI the, and the going through the court process, was that the sobering part that you're like, I have to, I'm putting my kids in danger now. Was that your turning point? Yes. Yes, it was my first time in rehab. I just, I was unwilling to admit that this was a real problem and that I really was out of control. For me, that was a, it was a pride thing. It was very much, no, no, you don't understand. I'm this good church girl from this great background and I'm just more stressed out than you are because I have four kids. I had all these excuses and I really had an ego wall that was very thick that I believed, truly believed that, nah, this doesn't happen to people like me. And I remember sitting in rehab and listening to different people talk about what they were going through. And a fair number of them had legal issues. And I was like, oh, see, I don't have legal issues. You know, I still, I'm still married. I have a house. And I just kept justifying, justifying, justifying everything I could think of that made me not an alcoholic. And so it was when I got that DUI that I really admitted that night in the jail cell in King County Jail that I was an alcoholic, that I really, to my innermost soul, said, okay, yeah, this is not, this isn't something that is controllable. I'm, I'm really a sick person. And if I really want any kind of semblance of my life, the way it used to be, I need to try. And I was really afraid of failing. That was the big deal, was trying to get sober and failing was my big fear. And that's why I think I kind of never really gave it a whirl before, was I just couldn't picture my life without booze. And I would think about, you know, well, what am I gonna do when my daughter gets married someday? down the road you know i can't have a glass of champagne at the wedding and you know i'm thinking through all of these things instead of just focusing on you know what we're gonna do this one day at a time mm -hmm. i'm just gonna forget about all of that and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it and for today i'm going to make choices that support a healthier me and that is by not drinking. And when I make that choice of not drinking, and if I make it for me, it will naturally start to flow out of me. And my kids will be the ones who benefit from that. My husband will be the one 
who benefits from that. I mean, those are like the by proxy for sure. I need to make my living amends and stay sober. But if I don't do it for myself, I don't think, I don't think that it would have worked if somebody, I mean, because, you know, that's the thing about alcoholism, mm -hmm. right? Addiction is that it doesn't respond to reason. So you can have, which my husband did, have these conversations with me that were basically begging me, please stop, please. Do you see what you're doing to our family? And, you know, I just really would promise from my heart that, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna get it together. I really am. I just, I had a hard week or whatever. And really in my heart of hearts, I was beating myself up, but I didn't understand that the disease was going to require complete surrender. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I thought I could cheat it. You know, I thought I could find the shortcut and that resulted in a DUI. So that's when I really decided, nope, the, the game's up. I've, I've got to try. I've got to try. Well, I think it's kind of, I don't want to say weird, but it was kind of like the, the turning points when other people started to be able to maybe be hurt by your actions because you had what you had broken your leg and you had also mm -hmm. broken your nose in the shower. I mean, and at yeah. some point that when you went to the hospital to get all these things fixed, the doctor even thought you were being abused by your husband at one point because of all these yeah. things happening to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, again, never said anything about how much I was drinking. Never, ever did that come out of my mouth. Um, I talked about, oh, yeah, I have a glass of wine every night, but I kept it real high level. I was terrified that somebody would say, you need to cut down. <laughs> or mm -hmm. have you considered that you might have an alcohol abuse problem? And I just, I couldn't fathom dealing with that because I couldn't handle the thought of my life without alcohol. And so I just would completely blame 10,000 other things, you know, went to that psychiatrist and or psychologist, I guess. And, oh, yeah, no, it's not my drinking. It's this, that and the other thing that are my problems. All these, uh, ex, you know, uh, external problems that I was thinking were making me drink. You know, if this, that and the other thing wouldn't have happened, then I wouldn't be drinking as much as I am, you know, is, is kind of how I reasoned it. And then I parroted back to any kind of doctor or the time that I was in the, the hospital. Oh yeah. Just uh, for the broken leg, I just tripped. I just tripped. There was, you know, there were toys on the stairs and, and I just wouldn't admit, I wouldn't admit it. So I probably could have stopped a lot sooner than I did, but I just had that pride and ego, which, you know, kept me stuck. Yeah. So let's talk about the concept behind your book where you're talking about the similarities of getting sober and giving birth. I mean, first of all, I'm very jealous of every one of your pretty much your birth experiences because it looked like you had very little labor pains. It was like they just slid out. So I'm so jealous yeah. of that. <laughs> but I love the way that you, nobody, this is a, such a great approach to sobriety is to use it as childbirth. And I think a lot of women will resonate with these because they actually go through all these steps as well. So what made you come up with the idea of doing that? Well, first of all, thank you so much. Um, you know, I think that all of the different pieces that make me who I am today, so wife and mom and sober woman, those things I just started to see themes, you know, the whole concept of, of birth being this process or being pregnant and having this process of there's this finite end where delivery is going to happen, right? For me, having that rock bottom moment of, yeah, I've got a choice here. I've got a choice and I can go through with this or not. And, you know, that point of no return um, in labor where it's sort of like there is no going back, but you you sort of are like, well, maybe 
maybe I can stop now and everything will be okay. Let me just go home, you know? And it's like, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> You're going to have this baby. And so um, I just sort of got this idea that perhaps I could intertwine all of that. And I had no idea how that was going to happen. Uh, but what ended up being such a blessing for me is I had this fantastic editor who, who got me and she understood what I was trying to do. And she helped me. I mean, all of those kind of loose threads, she just tied them all up. She could see what I couldn't see, which was a fantastic gift. And she helped me put it all together right down to, you know, afterbirth, getting rid of, you know, the things that no longer serve us. Um, that she's like, this is perfect because, you know, that's part of the birth process too. And, and so we kind of, um, we were able to put it together um, with just the two of us trying to figure out where the pieces fit. So yeah, I'm thankful for her. I honestly felt like when I was reading it that you were actually, that I could hear your voice and I could actually see like all the things happening in your life when they were happening, like in real time. Oh, thank you. That's huge. Thank you. Because, you know, as a mom, we always try to put our children first. And then when we don't feel worthy enough and there's a lot of things that moms deal with, especially about shame and and feeling like they don't measure up because they're just a stay at home mom. For the longest time, I was just a stay at home mom, too. So I get that. So how did you overcome all that? Well, I developed self-love and that was through therapy mostly. Um, and it's a, it's a work in process. I will still beat myself up for uh, missing the preschool day when I was supposed to bring snacks and I got distracted. It was on the wrong calendar day and I messed it up somehow. I will still start to um, feel terribly guilty and kind of slip into like this, like, oh man, kicking the dirt kind of thing. Uh, but really having tools to help me through that. So the whole concept of reframing it, okay, wait a minute, let me look at this. So do I usually show up for things on time? Do I usually show up uh, attending to the responsibilities that I need to attend to? Yes, I do. So this was a mistake and they will understand. And so, you know, coming forward with that apology isn't quite as devastating as it, it used to be back then, where I realized this is something that human beings do and it's okay. And and just having that whole sense of um, re re-looking at the situation through a new pair of glasses and really saying, okay, how important is this, by the way? Because that was the other thing is I tend to just really focus on making these things. These were the biggest deals ever. And it's like, they're, but they're not, but I couldn't see that. And so uh, at that time, and so for, for now, that's the, the stance that I like to try and operate from is, okay, Let's just look at this from a different angle. And in terms of like the real dark, deep shame and depression, there was a lot of therapeutic work with a really good therapist and a lot of writing and a lot of apologizing to myself actually as well, so. And looking back now, do you think right after you had your daughter and you started going through the postpartum and you had all these, you know, you had your four kids pretty much how, what are the age difference between the four kids, the, the young, the older four? So they're pretty much two years apart each or 18 months, pretty slimmed close together. And then between my surprise number five and then my fourth daughter, there's seven years. So okay. that's the big gap. So yeah. do you think looking back, if you had known it was postpartum, do you think your drinking would have got out quite as out of hand if you had gone and just admitted, hey, I'm not handling this so well? Yeah, you know, it's a great question and I, I don't know. I'll never know, um, you know, the answer to that. I know that for me, that as well, for some reason, was a really big deal. I really did not want to admit that I, oh, I can't possibly de be depressed. I mean, 
maybe somebody's gonna, you know, call my pastor and say, hey, we're worried about her. And and that was a really big thing for me that I was again filled with a lot of shame over the concept of that. And we were just starting to kind of come out of those stigmas at that point in time where, you know, it was really a hush-hush topic still that not a lot of people were talking about postpartum depression and, and normalizing it. And so again, I thought, oh, well, this is just another thing that I'm not good at is dealing with um, my emotions after having a baby and my hormones and uh, I just can't fail at this too. And that was an underlying thread that completely just was in everything I did was this fear of failure and feeling adopting that sense of failure as well. And then, you know, sadly what happens is you start to kind of just focus, hyper-focus on that. And so that's all I saw. You know, it was like the more I focused on it, the bigger it got. Oh, see, I failed again. Oh, see, I didn't do that right. Oh, see. And so instead of looking at the failures to turn it around, I mean, they're perceived failures anyway, right? But for me, once I started to focus on the positives, the positives started growing. And that was just totally unexpected for me and such a gift. Like I'd say, hey, that was pretty awesome. Like, you know, when whatever my kid did this and then, you know, I didn't have a diaper in the car and the, you know, meltdown was, I kind of just punted and I switched directions and I solved it by doing X, Y, and Z. All right. Like I got some skills, you know? And so I'd start to try and, and congratulate myself a little bit on small things like that. And, you know, it, it grew, it grew. And so, yeah, I try and now just, just remain a little bit like with open hands just to see what is today going to bring? What is today going to bring and how am I going to respond to it? Because I have a choice. I love that. A lot of people don't think they have choices, but you do have choices. Now, one of the things I want to hit on mm. is um, signs that your friend, that you see a friend that might have a drinking problem and how you can help them. Because honestly, I know a lot of people, if you confront them, a lot of them are like, deny, 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 like you did in the beginning. So what are some of the signs and how can we help people who may have a drinking problem? Well, I think some of the signs are uh, canceling a lot, canceling plans a lot. That was big for me. I was either too drunk or too hungover. And I mean, like, you know, constant canceling, not, you know, the one off. Oh, my kid is sick. I can't I can't attend. But um, just becoming very re unreliable when they would like to be reliable. That's usually a pretty big sign. And then um, a real sense of unhappiness, like deep rooted unhappiness and sadness beyond being honest about um, life and how difficult it is to be a mother, but just a lot of constant crying um, when talking, that, that's probably a sign that something is off. Maybe not drinking too much per se, but, but that somebody might need a little bit of assistance or help. And then, you know, probably the last thing I would say is just uh, an inability to um, cope with life on life's terms and constantly be wondering, is there going to be alcohol at this, that, or the other event? Like a play date, for example, um, showing up to a play date and they're not being mimosas there is probably pretty normal. Uh, but for me, that was a freak out. That was like, okay, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get alcohol? How am I going to feel better about this? How am I going to escape these nagging feelings that I'm not enough? There's no alcohol here. And so constantly looking when I went out to dinner with girlfriends to, you know, make sure we went to a restaurant where there was a bar and those types of things. Now, what to do about it? Gosh, that's a hard one, right? Because you just feel powerless as a friend watching these things happen to someone you love and, you know, a close friend and whatever. Um, 
And I don't even know if this would have worked for me, but I know it would have worked a lot better than lectures is if somebody would have come up to me and said, you know, like for example, uh, I'm really struggling. You know, the pandemic has been super hard and I've put on 30 pounds, for example, right? And I really found that I'm using other methods to cope with life because it's been so difficult. Can, can you relate at all? And just opening a conversation mm -hmm. like that, um, I know would have helped me quite a bit because I always felt below everybody else, mm -hmm. which was one of the reasons that I hid was um, it's this, I had this pride and ego that kept me right from saying I need help, mm -hmm. but I also felt like I should be able to handle this. Why can't I handle this? And so it was this weird dichotomy and this weird paradox. Um, which is, is very uh, trademark addiction. But also, um, and, and I'll, I'll close it with this one, is that I feel a lot of times, uh, like sometimes if we just approach somebody and just go, hey, do you want me to just listen to you? Do you want, I'm happy to just hear you, you know? And so the whole concept of when somebody does um, open up to ask them, Hey, would you like me to just hear you or do you want me to help you? Do you are you saying that you'd like some help and you'd like me to do a little bit of research or the third one would be handle it. Do you want me to just handle this for you? Figure out, hey, you know what? You have this insurance, you could go to, you know, spend uh, 28 days in a in a rehab facility if you felt like that was something that you might benefit from, we'll handle it. We'll take, I'll figure out the kids with your spouse. We'll figure this out. And, and sometimes people are willing to do that, but it's just, we're all so different, right? And mm -hmm. then at different stages in some of the things that we deal with. Um, so to just be open and flexible and um, not make somebody try and fit into the box of what, you know, I think is right or wrong is pretty key. Now let's talk about the end of your book before our time is almost up. Cause I want to talk about how you went on the trip with your kids and came back and you ended up after going through all this with your sobriety, ending up with um, cardiomyopathy. And are you, oh. how are you, how is your health? Because I, that runs in my family. So I so sympathize with you so much. And that's what my grandmother died from where my aunts died from. So I so understand that. So I empathize with you. So how is your health and in, in moving forward? How has that helped you? Oh, that is so kind. Thank you for, and oh, sorry about your grandmother. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult health uh, crisis really. And yeah, it, it was a, it was pretty devastating to have, that just kind of come out of nowhere and to suddenly be in the hospital for four days. And, you know, it's just funny as moms, right? We just power through. So I'm on this trip and I'm just powering through and then got home and thought, okay, I better get some antibiotics. And really um, with the information I have from my doctor now, like I should not be alive. I, I should not have ever even made it back to the States from that trip. But, um, you know, I had, in my deepest, quietest, darkest moments, I had thoughts of, well, maybe that's it. Maybe this is the end of my journey. And I was supposed to just have these eight kids. And now my husband is going to meet some other lady and she'll be the one to raise them. Mm -hmm. And and I tried to come to grips with that and really just be um, as okay with that as I could be. But, um, you know, I started to uh, get better. And I think one of the main reasons that I got better was I just refused to slip into this, like, I'm a sick person mode um, because I knew that that wasn't going to serve me very well. I mean, I knew the reality of my situation was not great, that my doctor had told me, you know, hey, if your heart function does not improve within a year, statistically uh, it's not going to. And so having those really hard conversations and then going to the transplant doctor over across the bridge at the University of Washington, all these surreal things. But I just kept sort of telling myself, 
okay, I can, I can do hard things and this is unfortunate and I'm going to figure this out, but I just refuse to be that grumpy, scared, uh, cranky person in the process because if I died, I would hate for my kids and my husband and my friends to look back on me and just be like, boy, towards the end, <laughs> she was really unpleasant, you know? And so for mm -hmm. me, that was the biggest deal was if I do pass, how do I want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as a positive person. So I just kind of clung to that. And I think it kind of helped heal me. I'll be honest. I think it did. Because normally when someone's hit with a health diagnosis like that, that's normally the first thing they turn to is a drink to just, so that yeah. must have been really hard for you. Yeah. You know, I knew that there was nothing that a drink would make better. I knew it would just amplify all of my fears and sadness over the whole thing. So um, thankfully by that point, it just wasn't, it wasn't an option that I saw as a viable option. Um, so I'm full, filled with gratitude for that. Cause that would have just been like, now I have this massive problem, cardiomyopathy. And now I have two problems cause I'm drinking again. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, I want to thank you again, Amy, for coming on. I just, I, you guys, I cannot say enough about this book. It's, it's a very quick read. It's a, it's a good read. It doesn't get too technical. You just talk about your life and it's like you're sitting down with your girlfriend and, and learning about her life on the first date, you know, our first meeting or something. Um, you go in deep, you don't yes. spare anything. And thank you for being vulnerable and for sharing your story, because I think that's when other people are able to share theirs when they see other people being vulnerable as well. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that um, it resonated with you. And, and that was my hope is that, people would be able to relate to it on some level. And thank you so much for having me on. What a privilege it's been chatting. And I just appreciate all your time. Now, before we go, tell us where people can find you at. Sure. So uh, my website is amylizharrison.com. And I'm at amylizharrison on Instagram and basically across all of those platforms. And it's always her. Amy Liz Harrison. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and her book is Externally Expecting. And I love this. And guys, I cannot say enough about it. I will put the link where you can get it and all the links where you can find her at in the show notes. So you can just hop over and follow her on Instagram and follow her journey with her. Are, are your kids on your Instagram or is that mainly professional? It's mainly professional, but they're on there a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so you can follow and see the, the beautiful eight kids that she has because that's one of the things in the book. She gives you a little scrapbook shots of what <laughs> her kids look like and what's gone through. So once again, Amy Liz, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story and for sharing your time with me as well and for agreeing to this interview. And as always, Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank yeah. you. And as always, guys, be blessed. And remember, most importantly, keep chatting. We'll see you on the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now.